Morning, everyone. Father, we come to this familiar account. So thankful for your word and so encouraged by the work that it does in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as we listen to these verses, I'm sure that we've um, read them many times, probably even heard some number of sermons on them, that you'd reveal fresh truth to us, but we also recognize just how um, susceptible we are to forgetting things that we've heard before, the need to be reminded. I think the number of times just in the New Testament where Paul says, I, I must remind you of this. So perhaps you'll spend this morning reminding us of truths that we've heard before. Whatever the case, Lord, we can be thankful for the work that your word does. I come before you, Lord, um, on behalf of the congregation, in a sense, thankful for the work that it does and pray for it this morning and pray that you'd use me as your vessel for it to do that sanctifying and cleansing work. I pray for anyone who, at least the way Zacchaeus begins this account, as an unbeliever who finds themselves here this morning and perhaps just out of curiosity's sake, like was the case for Zacchaeus, that they would be able to hear the words that Jesus, uh, your son, said to Zacchaeus that today salvation has come to this house. And so I pray that for any people here, that today would be the day of salvation for them if they're unsaved. I pray, Lord, that if there's anything that's not in my notes, that you'd have me share, that you'd bring that to mind. And that really, more than anything else, this would be a time that you meet with your people and that they would hear from you and not me. And to burden for Dick and Trish, as I'm sure many people here are, Lord, and I pray that we can be uh, thankful for the health you've given us and be mindful to keep them in prayer, sensitive to their needs and all the things going on in their lives during this time. I pray that you'd be with them as much as you're being with us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, Does Zacchaeus Teach Restitution for Salvation? Does Zacchaeus Teach Restitution for Salvation? On Sunday mornings, we're working our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, and we find ourselves at Luke 19, verse 1. Here's part of an email from someone I don't know. The person wrote, Scott, as I reflect on my past and my many sins, I am more aware of how wretched and worthless I am. I am also convicted of sins that I wonder if I must undo. For example, when I was 16, and I worked at Ross, I stole clothes. I'm pretty sure I don't own any of the clothes any longer, nor do I know the amount or worth of what I took. However, will I go to hell if I don't find a way to pay back what I stole? There are so many other things I could list. I feel like my past is like Humpty Dumpty, and I can't fix it. Someone else sent me a message about a certificate he had received, and he said that he was able to obtain the certificate because he cheated on the exam to obtain the certificate, and he didn't know how to handle this. He wondered if he should stop using the certificate or if he should go back and try to be recertified, but he wasn't even sure if he could be recertified because he was already certified. So I think messages like these can capture one of the more common questions that we have, and it would be like this. Is restitution needed for salvation? I committed all of these sins before becoming a Christian, and what must be done about them now? Do I need to try to fix them? If I was going to try to fix them, what would that look like? And if there's one place in Scripture that would cause us to believe that God does want us to make restitution, for the sins that we've committed. I believe that we have reached it this morning with Zacchaeus. Let me say that one more time. So if we were led to believe that we should make restitution for sins that we've committed, if there's one place in Scripture that would cause us to believe that, I believe we have reached that passage this morning with Zacchaeus. So we're going to look at it in detail to see what exactly this account does and doesn't teach. So look with me at verse 1. It says, he, this is Jesus, he entered Jericho, and he's passing through. And so Luke has constructed this chronology, and this morning's verses pick up right from the last sermon. If you remember the last sermon on blind Bartimaeus, Jesus healed Bartimaeus when he was heading toward Jericho. Bartimaeus sat outside, uh, alongside the road, entering Jericho. Jesus healed Bartimaeus and now made his way into Jericho. 
And that's where these verses pick up. Verse 2, it says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And I'll briefly remind you about tax collectors. Eight times in the Synoptic Gospels, it says tax collectors and sinners, instead of murderers and sinners or adulterers and sinners. So why is it written this way? Or why is it written as though tax collectors are like another level of wickedness? <laughs> or tax collectors are the worst sinners imaginable that need their own category? <laughs> Someone said they are. <laughs> in Jesus' day, but I'm wondering if Kirk means that as much in our day. <laughs> um, and so, so the fact is, tax collectors, to the Jewish mind or to the mind of some people in our day, were really about as bad as you can get. But at least for um, the Jews... The Romans were severely taxing them, and they were collecting taxes, and uh, the, well, let me say it like this. The Romans severely taxed the Jews, and then the Jews who collected taxes for the Romans were considered, understandably, traitors to the Jewish people because they were serving the Romans against the Jews for their own profit or gain. So tax collectors were wealthy, and you see that even in the verse. It says, there was a man, behold, named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, and we're even told he was rich. So for Luke to bring attention to that tells you he must have been substantially wealthy. So they're wealthy, but it was a wealth that was made off of the backs of their already severely oppressed Jewish brethren. Tax collectors were required to collect a certain amount in taxes for Rome, and then anything that they collected above that, they could pocket and these Jewish tax collectors had Rome's support behind them. And so you say, well, why didn't, why didn't the Jews just give the, their Jewish tax collecting brethren the exact amount they're supposed to give and no more? Well, because those Jewish tax collectors had Romans supporting them. And so they could basically do whatever they want. They could make the threats. And you were going to give that amount uh, regardless of whether it was right or just. And so they were terribly despised. And probably the only thing worse than a tax collector is a chief tax collector, right? And so right here, unless I'm missing something, this is the only individual in Scripture identified as a chief tax collector. And it seems like a chief tax collector would be one who was a supervisor or manager of other tax collectors, which Zacchaeus was. Does anyone's Bibles tell you what Zacchaeus' name means? Super ironically. <laughs> Does anyone see it in a footnote or something? It means pure. Zacchaeus's name means pure, which is obviously ironic since tax collectors were anything but pure. But by the time we reach the end of this account, we are going to see that Zacchaeus did become pure through Christ. Verse 3 says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. Now, I'm letting you know I'm committed to going through this sermon without making any jokes about tall people in scripture looking bad like Saul and Goliath and short people such as David and now Zacchaeus looking good so beyond that comment I won't bring up anything further unless I can't control myself well enough okay <laughs> so and we know the song right Katie said hey are you going to sing that song no I'm not going to sing the song Zacchaeus was a wee little man right we're not going to do that but that's how we know know about him anyway let's keep going here with the sermon so verse four when katie asked me that she said are you going to sing the song during the sermon I'm so, i said no i'm not going to sing the song maybe i'll invite you up to sing the song because that would sound a lot better than if i sang it so it says zacchaeus ran on ahead he climbs up into a sycamore tree to see jesus for jesus was about to pass that way so we see zacchaeus pursuing jesus and this brings us to the first part of lesson one Part one, Zacchaeus sought Jesus. Zacchaeus sought Jesus. There are many commendable things about Zacchaeus that I want to bring your attention to. So first, he was curious. I would say he was curious versus indifferent. John Calvin had this fascinating quote about curiosity. Listen and see if it, if it resonates with you like it did with me. He said, curiosity is a sort of preparation for faith curiosity is a sort of preparation for faith and i like that because the very worst people 
to have to share the gospel with are those who are indifferent. I mean, you can give me the staunchest Buddhist. You, you could give me the staunchest Mormon. You could, you could give me the staunchest atheist. And I would rather deal with them versus an indifferent person because an indifferent person simply doesn't care. There's nothing to work with there. You can't even have a conversation with them. They're just not interested. When I was a school teacher, the, I didn't mind students that had a lot of personality. Personality is kind of a code word for misbehaving. And, and I didn't mind them. They, they'd bring some color to the classroom, you might say. But the very worst students were those that just were indifferent, that were uninterested constantly. And so a curious person is someone who will learn is interested, and with Zacchaeus, I see a very curious person, which sets up this account. So curious that he has got to be able just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Second, and, and the other thing is, even, I'm not exactly sure that I'm right about this. It seems like commentators go back and forth about what it means to be lukewarm, right? Jesus is like, be hot, be cold, just don't be lukewarm lukewarm to me is indifferent you just don't care it's like be on fire or be cold but just don't be right in the middle where you're super indifferent so it seems like even jesus condemns indifference second i believe zacchaeus is dealing with conviction i don't know how someone could live as he did betraying his own brethren without some amount of guilt or shame or let's say conviction so he has this conviction, and when many are convicted or, let's say, experiencing guilt or shame, they will do what Adam and Eve did when they first sinned. What did Adam and Eve do right after they sinned? They hid, right? Genesis 3.8, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves, and that's common. Sometimes I wonder when people are not attending church who used to attend church if and, and I don't mean they're going to another church. I'm just saying they're not going to church at all if there's some sin or something that's causing them to want to, to hide like that. So Zacchaeus had been terrible, but unlike Adam and Eve, he's not, or unlike people in our day, he's not trying to hide because of his guilt and shame. He makes every effort instead to see Jesus. Another thing about Zacchaeus, he's in this large crowd, would have been difficult for anyone to see Jesus, especially Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus did not let that stop him. So he could have convinced himself, well, I'm, I'm too small. Uh, there's no way that I'll be able to see him. I'm just going to go ahead and give up. Well, he would not give up. He was a zealous, passionate person. And you could even argue this. Well, if he was small, he would have actually had an easier time making it making his way through the crowd to catch a glimpse of Jesus. So why did he handle it the way that he did? Well, first, and I'm not making a joke, but there was the potential because he was short that in this crowd he could have been trampled, right? There's potential in large crowds. We see that happen in our day where there's large crowds, whether it's at games or whether it's at concerts, people pressing into each other. Someone gets knocked down and the other people trample on that person. So he could have feared that, but my suspicion is the greater concern he had was that as a hated tax collector, and probably a well-known one, as a chief, I think everyone probably knows the tax collectors, but you're definitely going to know a chief tax collector, that if he finds himself in the middle of this crowd, what might happen? He might get beat up, or there were zealots who were known to carry knives and assassinate, or, or uh, he could be stabbed, or worse, and so he doesn't want to be caught in the middle of this crowd. Fourth, when we were in the parable of the prodigal son, we talked about the father running toward his son when he saw him returning home, and we talked about how that was incredibly uncommon in the Middle East for honorable, wealthy, dignified men to run. Instead, people ran toward them. But here, we see a grown wealthy, distinguished man, Zacchaeus, running ahead of the crowd, doing something very uncommon for his day. And this, this bizarre behavior from Zacchaeus does not, in fact, the running actually looks more reasonable when you see what he did after he ran. So I've said this to you before, 
we make the mistake frequently, and I, I do this as well, of, and I'll be, you know, I'll study for a sermon, right? And I'll be looking at an account, it could be like this one, that I don't know how many times that I've read, and then I'll look at a commentary, and this commentator makes a point, and I thought, I can't believe I never <laughs> recognized that before. I thought, I can't believe I never saw that detail in this of all the times that I've read it. And so it's very common for us to just read things and just kind of go quickly, especially if you've grown up in Sunday school singing this song about Zacchaeus your whole life, that you forget or miss how incredibly bizarre it was that he did what? Climbed a tree. Honorable men are not going to be running. Well, you can be sure they're definitely not going to be climbing trees. In fact, even today, unless your job required you to do it, like to cut down some limbs or something, what if you walked out and saw some grown man climbing a tree? That's going to look pretty strange to you. Well, I'm sharing all this for a reason. Zacchaeus's pride could have been a huge obstacle. He could have thought that all of this behavior was far below him. But he cared enough to see Jesus, he cared enough to stuff down his pride that he was willing to do these things that could have been considered far unbecoming of a man of his at least financial, not physical, but financial stature. But he didn't think it was beneath him. He was not going to let that stop him. So Zacchaeus is a great example of someone who seeks Jesus and doesn't let anything stand in his way. There are numerous verses that encourage us to be like Zacchaeus and seek the Lord. His pursuit of the Lord is a good physical picture of what we should do spiritually. Just a few verses of many I could give you. Proverbs 8, 17. God says, I love those who love me, and I love those who seek me and diligently find me. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jeremiah 29, 13. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Amos 5, 4, the Lord said, seek me and live. So when I read this account, and perhaps this would be a good thing for you to do in the privacy of your heart, consider whether there's anything holding you back from seeking Jesus. For Zacchaeus, it could have been a number of things. It could have been his guilt that held him back or caused him to want to hide. It could have been his short stature. It could have been his pride. It could have been the crowd itself not wanting to get trampled or, or stabbed in it. And so what might it be in our lives that would hold us back from Christ or pursuing him? Could it be an ungodly relationship that needs to be broken off? How many people have been moving toward Christ? And then I believe you could argue Satan introduces a relationship to stumble them. And then that pursuit is, is broken off when they should be breaking off. The pursuit of Christ is broken off when they should be breaking off that relationship. Could it be a hobby? Some activity that in and of itself isn't sinful, but perhaps over time we're committing too much time or energy to it. It's become a hindrance to our relationships with Christ. Could it be a job that we've turned into an idol? Again, how much does the enemy love to see us take things that are of a moral, so good or righteous nature, and then allow those to become bad things? for us, right? How many good things does God give us that we twist or then pervert and turn into bad things or even idols? And jobs can be one of those things. Jobs are wonderful. We praise God for for when we're able to have jobs that allow us to take care of our families. But even that can become something bad that hinders us in our relationships with Christ if it becomes an idol. Could it be our dignity or could it be our pride? Maybe we care too much what others think. Maybe we need to humble ourselves like Zacchaeus was willing to humble himself. So look what happened when Zacchaeus sought Jesus. Verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, if you remember the previous account, previous account with Bartimaeus in our last sermon, Jesus toward He's probably slightly on the decline from the height of, his height of popularity, but there are still large crowds following Jesus. It is still hard for him to find a place to, to rest it is, or to, to be able to eat or spend time alone or just with the disciples. So large crowds following Jesus. And just like when he's coming into Jericho, for him to stop and address Bartimaeus meant what? It meant the whole procession stops. It meant hundreds, but probably thousands of people stop in their tracks as well when jesus addresses bartimaeus 
Well, similarly, when Jesus addresses Zacchaeus here, everyone is going to stop. Now, my suspicion is the crowds were probably as shocked as Jesus or as Zacchaeus when Jesus said, let me say it like this, when Jesus addressed Zacchaeus, I bet the crowds were as shocked as Zacchaeus was. So what could Jesus have said? He could have said, hey, you short little hated tax collector up there in the tree, come down, you look silly up there. <laughs> but instead, Jesus, in front of all these people, chose to use his name. And I noticed that because it is significant. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel valued when people use our names or when people rem- remember our names. It's much different than if someone just says, hey, or hi, or, or what's up. We like to be addressed by our names. It reminds us that someone remembered us or that we were important to that person. Before I started teaching elementaries, I'd been um, just by nature of having been in the military, there was a marketability, a marketability, market, there was, I was somewhat marketable, let's say it like that. After getting out of the military from having been an officer, and so I was hired at a distribution center for Target, and it was a large distribution center in Woodland, California. So this is the second Woodland I've lived in. And there were hundreds, I think the, the warehouse itself was half a mile long or longer than that. They give you these scooters to ride from one side to the warehouse, and I'm getting to a point with this. They gave you these scooters to ride from one side of the warehouse to the other. So there were hundreds or maybe even more than a thousand employees. And the, the manager, not of a department, but the general manager of the entire distribution center was super popular super popular. I heard lots of stories about this man, and all of the stories were the same, that he knew everyone's names. They would talk about him being able to travel around this distribution center, and no matter who he met, he was always able to use their names. I heard stories about these large department meetings where there would be hundreds of people, and someone would raise their hand and, the, and this gentleman would be able to look and call them by name. And so my point is, it was that significant to all these people that when they talked about him, he knew all of their names. Now, in Zacchaeus's case, as a hated tax collector, how many times do you think he had heard his name used in anything other than a derogatory way? My suspicion is unless he's dealing with another tax collector, another despised individual, nobody uses his name nicely. Nobody talks positive. Nobody sees him in the marketplace and says, hey, Zacchaeus, how are you doing today? Maybe he doesn't even go to the marketplace because he doesn't want things thrown at him. And so this could have been the first time in who knows how long that he's heard his name used in any sort of affectionate way. And of all the people that could have addressed him, it happened to be the Son of God. It'd be an amazing honor for us. It would probably be like the president calling out to us while passing through large crowds. And it became even more significant for Zacchaeus because not only did Jesus call out to him, Jesus even said, I'm going to your house. I'm going to stay with you in front of all of these people. They heard him say this. And This is the only recorded instance in the gospel of Jesus inviting himself someplace. We do find Jesus frequently in the homes of other people, but this is the only instance of Jesus inviting himself someplace. So he looks at Zacchaeus, tells him, come down, I'm going to your house. And notice Jesus doesn't, we assume he went to have dinner. We say that. We say, hey, Zacchaeus went to have, or Jesus went to have dinner with Zacchaeus. That's not really what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to stay with you. Well, that's a much more intimate staying with someone than just having a meal with them. So I'm not sure how long Jesus, it'd be entirely speculative for me to say how long Jesus stayed with him, but I will say that he did more than just have a a meal with him. He stayed there for some length of time. We see Jesus pursuing this friendship and this association with Zacchaeus. Or let me say this, we see Jesus pursuing a friendship or association with someone 
who everyone else despised, wanted nothing to do with, and say nothing about how some sort of friendship or association with him. So look how Zacchaeus responds. Verse 6, he hurries down out of the tree, or he hurried and came down, and Zacchaeus received Jesus. This means received Jesus into his home joyfully. So what might Zacchaeus have said? Well, you know, I'm too horrible, or I'm too terrible for Jesus. You would never want anything to do with me, or, or everyone else despises me. Do you remember the Roman centurion who thought that he, he was so despised by the Jews that Jesus should not come under his roof, tried to protect Jesus from that, from that perception? And so Zacchaeus could have said something like that. No, I'm, t- I'm a terrible person. Instead, he's thrilled with this opportunity. And I think that's one thing to learn from this account. Some people can feel like this. So here's one of, the, one of the things I'd invite you to consider. And I only know this just from being on this side, from being a pastor. You would never imagine the things people are dealing with when they come to church. You would never imagine the things going on in people's lives. I've never imagined them until I, people who've come to church for weeks or months, sometimes longer than that. And then you sit down with them and you learn that they're coming to church with all of this guilt or all of this shame or this belief that they're not good enough or the Lord would never want to have anything to do with them or, or well, they're not good enough to be here and everyone else's life is together or their family is together, which isn't the case. Nobody's life is together. Nobody's marriage is perfectly together. Nobody's family is perfectly together. Sure, people can look that way when they come to church, but once you get to know people well enough, you learn that we all have problems, we're all struggling with things, and, there's, and we all have things that if, if someone was a fly on the wall in our house, then that we'd be plenty ashamed for people to witness. So we're all coming to church as sinners, but because of that, there are some people that come to church, and it's like, I don't know that the Lord would want anything to do with me. And so I hope if you're one of those people that this account can encourage you. That's what's intended by it that if Jesus would pursue the most despised individual in his day, that we can be encouraged that Jesus pursues us, that Jesus wants a relationship with us, that we're not too bad for him, or he would not be too upset with us, or we wouldn't have done anything that's so wicked he'd want nothing to do with us. Now, verse 7, which flows very well from this, when they saw, this is the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. These religious leaders despised what they witnessed. You can imagine the disdain in their voices when they said this or grumbled this. And the reason that I said this verse flows very well from what took place before this is when individuals with notorious reputations or with or individuals with well-known pasts come to christ there's always two groups there's one group that celebrates their repentance and salvation this there's always one group that celebrates the repentance and salvation of that person that came to christ and then there's always another group who looks at that person's repentance and salvation and grumbles just complains about it so Nobody should ever expect to be able to come to Christ and have everyone be happy about it. (laughs) We should all expect that when people come to Christ, there are going to be some people who grumble about that. Or maybe when you came to Christ, maybe there were people who knew you well, remembered things you did, and whether because of things going on in their own lives or their own guilt or shame, when you come to Christ, their response is like, oh, what, but now you think you're better than me? Oh, now you think you're such a good person? Oh, now you're one of those Christians. Well, you're just going to be one of those judgmental, hateful, and they've got all the condemnation, they've got all the grumbling, or, or maybe the other side of it. You're just too bad to come to Christ. He wouldn't want anything to do with you. You're a terrible person. Whatever the case, there's going to be people who grumble, just like the religious leaders grumbled here. And those people always have something in common. They think they're better. Whenever people grumble, it is inevitably a reflection of their pride because they see a separation. They've drawn a chasm between themselves and the person coming to Christ. And that's what happened with the religious leaders. The religious leaders see themselves here 
They see others here. And so when these people come to Christ, the religious leaders looking down on them grumble and complain about it. We can have a good measure of our pride by considering how much better we think we are than others. Maybe one of the best indications of our pride is how large the chasm is between us and others, or how large we think, because actually, let me say like this, how large we think that chasm is, because it's not large. We're, there's no distance. We're all sinners. God doesn't look down and see some being bigger, better, worse than others. But however large that chasm is in our mind between us and others is the reflection or barometer for our pride. So Zacchaeus has Jesus in his house now. And you'd almost miss it. You'd almost wonder, because it doesn't discuss a few things. It doesn't specifically talk about Jesus going into Zacchaeus' house. And we don't really get to hear what Jesus said in there. Now, I can't say for sure why Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus preached while he was in Zacchaeus' house. Maybe it's because we've already heard so much of Jesus' preaching about the kingdom of God up to this point that Luke doesn't tell us that that's what he was doing again. But my suspicion is because this has been the pattern with Jesus since his earthly ministry began to preach the kingdom of God, that Jesus is in Zacchaeus' home, he's preaching the kingdom of God, Zacchaeus is listening, and even if I don't know or we don't know exactly what Jesus preached, we do know this. It did a tremendous work in Zacchaeus' heart. As Zacchaeus listened to Jesus' preaching, something very dramatic happened in Zacchaeus' heart, and we can tell that by looking at Zacchaeus' response here, verse 8. Zacchaeus stands. I mean, he's so stirred up by what Jesus said. He's so emotionally or spiritually stirred up. He physically stands. He says to the Lord, behold. Now, normally, you don't normally say behold to the Lord, do you? Behold is like, look, or I think it's King James, verily, verily. So Zacchaeus is like, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So do you see how Zacchaeus looks like the opposite of the rich young ruler we read about in the previous chapter? So the rich young ruler, Jesus says, give away your possessions. Zacchaeus won't do it. Or excuse me, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, give away your possessions. The rich young ruler won't do it. Jesus doesn't tell Zacchaeus to give away his possessions, and Zacchaeus wants to do it. So these are almost parallel passages where we get to see the opposite behavior from two individuals. Now, no commentators. I could spend a a, a lot of time on this. I just decided to cut it out. Every week you decide certain amounts to cut out from the sermon. I could tell you the different parts of the law, primarily found in Exodus and Leviticus, that Zacchaeus could have had in mind when he said this. No commentator can tell us the exact command in the law that Zacchaeus had in mind because there's no command in the law that exactly matches what Zacchaeus said he was going to do here. So I'll just say this. This is what I think was happening. Because it says Zacchaeus stood, and because it says that Zacchaeus said, behold, he's stirred up, convicted, and probably joyful about everything happening, about Jesus singling him out, about Jesus inviting himself to Zacchaeus' home. And now he's stirred up by what Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus in his house, that Zacchaeus just says, this is what I'm going to do. And he doesn't care about quibbling or worrying about every minute part of the law. He has just made this decision or God has convicted him and he responds to the conviction, this is what I'm going to do. I'll give away half of my possessions and if I've defrauded anything, I'm going to restore it fourfold. So he doesn't worry about the exact terms of the law. He just decides that he's going to do more than the law required because his heart has been changed. Now look how Jesus responds, which I'm sure must have been very encouraging to Zacchaeus. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, this is Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. Now I want you to just notice the contrast between the way the religious leaders describe Zacchaeus and the way Jesus describes Zacchaeus. Back in verse 7, how did the religious leaders describe Zacchaeus? As what? 
a sinner. Just the condemnation, the disdain. He is a sinner. Horrible, wretched, terrible sinner. We hate him. We can't believe Jesus would go into his house. He's a despicable man. Zacchaeus is, and Jesus is despicable for going under his roof. Now, when Jesus describes Zacchaeus, how does he describe him? It's not a trick question in verse 9. Oh, come on, guys. What does it say? He says, he is a son of Abraham. That's synonymous with being a believer or a Christian. Galatians 3, 7, know that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And it's very interesting that of all the ways Jesus could have described Zacchaeus, he described him as a son of Abraham. And follow me on this. The tax collectors were viewed as the traitors to the sons of Abraham. Because the tax collectors were traitors to the Jews, the biological sons of Abraham, the last thing Zacchaeus would be considered was a son of Abraham. In fact, he looks like Zacchaeus looks like by his behavior, he has stopped being a son of Abraham because he's turned his back on all of the Jews or all of the sons of Abraham through his treachery. But of all the things Jesus could have said, he says, truly, this is a son of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And because the, I don't know if the religious leaders heard Jesus say this. I don't think they did. If the religious leaders condemned Jesus for going into Zacchaeus's house, I doubt the religious leaders would have followed Zacchaeus into, Jesus into Zacchaeus's house. But considering the religious leaders were always spying on Jesus, maybe they did follow the, him into Zacchaeus' house. But whatever the case, if the religious leaders had heard Jesus describe Zacchaeus this way, there's probably no more outrageous way that Jesus could have described Zacchaeus. In other words, there's probably no more offensive way that Jesus could have talked about Zacchaeus than the way he did. And there's a part of me that wishes the religious leaders had heard Jesus call Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Now, we reach the part of the account that has caused people the most confusion over the years. So follow the order here. Jesus declares that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham after, or it almost looks like in response to Zacchaeus's declaration about making right his wrongs. Do you see that? Jesus makes a declaration about Zacchaeus being a son of Abraham after Zacchaeus's declaration to right his wrongs, which makes it look like you want to be a son of Abraham or daughter, you right your wrongs, or another way to say it is you make restitution for your sin and then you'll be able to be a son or daughter of Abraham, spiritually speaking, or a believer or Christian as well. So let's talk about what's going on here. I'm going to go through many parts of this quickly, and this brings us to the first part of lesson two. Restitution is not needed for salvation because part one, Zacchaeus's behavior is descriptive versus prescriptive. Zacchaeus's behavior is descriptive versus prescriptive. We'll come back to the rest of lesson one. I don't want to spend too much time on being descriptive versus prescriptive because I've talked about it so many times before, but just understand the Bible can describe what happened without prescribing or prescribing that we do the same. So it can be descriptive without being prescriptive, and we can get in a ton of trouble when we take what's descriptive and make it prescriptive or act what we have to do the same or, act that we have, or believe we have to do the same. Now, here's what's interesting. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus comfortable giving Zacchaeus commands? We've already seen one command, or maybe you can even argue two commands. We know Jesus was comfortable commanding Zacchaeus. He commanded him to get out of the tree, right? And you could say he indirectly commanded him to let him come into his house to stay with him. So my point is, Jesus can tell anyone what to do if he wants. He's the Lord. He's God in the flesh. So he doesn't have to worry about whether he can command people. But he didn't command Zacchaeus here. He could have, but he didn't. And so my point is, simply put, this is what Zacchaeus, of his own volition or conviction, chose to do and is not commanded of us. 
Next part of lesson two. Restitution is not needed for salvation because part two, there are too many sins to count. Too many sins to count. Okay, now just by a show of hands, do me a favor. Who can remember all the sins they committed yesterday? Yeah, look around. Exactly, right? We can't keep track of the sins we commit over the course of a day or days or a week. Say nothing about months, years, decades. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, assuming that he's a chief tax collector. He was probably a good tax collector, good, not morally, but good in the sense of being effective. He seemed to have been promoted to over to supervise other tax collectors. So what's my point? He probably had detailed records. He's probably thorough and meticulous. So he probably had records of all the... He could look back and see all the people he had defrauded. So he could say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to pay them back because I have records of the people that I've ripped off. And I want to make that right now. But you know what? Zacchaeus didn't make restitution for all of his sins. He's only got one area of life here, and that's his life as a tax collector. Do you think that Zacchaeus made restitution or made right every sin he committed? Not even close. He fixed a few things associated with being a tax collector. There's plenty of other things he thought in his mind, whether, whether lust or hatred or, 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 all the, or covetousness, all of the sins that we commit. He didn't make restitution for any of those. So even Zacchaeus didn't make restitution probably for even most of the sins that he committed. If restitution was needed for salvation, nobody could be saved. We can't remember all the sins we've committed. Even if we could, we wouldn't be able to make all of them right. Even if we tried to make them right, we'd spend the rest of our lives trying to make them right, not being able to do so, committing more sins in the process. We can't take care of our sins before we're Christians. We can't take care of our sins after we're Christians. People who've had abortions. And it's kind of interesting, I've noticed something. I can talk about certain things, and some people, like if I talk about abortion, for example, some people listen to that, and they f- recognize that I'm being pastoral, not just trying to protect unborn babies, but even trying to protect people from the guilt and shame that they experience after having abortions. So they could actually listen to me talk about abortions and say, we recognize Pastor Scott is being compassionate and loving here because he wants to protect people from the guilt and shame that people who have had abortions experience for years. But there's another group of people that listens and says, oh, you're just trying to condemn people who've had abortions. It's important to understand that when you listen to a sermon and there's a pastor who's preaching on something, he's being pastoral. He's trying to help. He's being loving. He's not trying to be harsh. He doesn't have an ax to grind. He's trying to prevent people from experiencing some of those things that through his ministry he's noticed people experiencing. And so with all that said, there are a few things that haunt people like abortions. Because there are many things in life that when you're convicted, you feel like if God convicts you about it, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the sermon, you can make right. But that is something in every single birthday. Every single birthday rolls around, they don't stop thinking about it. It is a horrible thing for someone to have to carry with them. And so when you talk to people about abortions, you can do so out of a heart of compassion that they don't have to carry, besides just the heart for the unborn children that you want to protect, but the heart of compassion for those people that you don't want them to carry that sort of guilt and shame with them for the rest of their lives. And so regarding restitution, there's nothing aside from looking to Christ in faith that can be done as far as restitution. But Let's just be thankful that by the gospel of Jesus Christ, or according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not required to be saved. That's not required to be forgiven. Restitution is not needed to be forgiven. My heart would break for deathbed conversions if restitution was needed. Imagine someone reaches the end of their life, and for the first time they're thinking soberly about eternity. They're receptive to the gospel in a way they never have been before. Someone shares the gospel with them, but they believe that they can't become a Christian until they can make things right when they might only have hours left. 
How heartbreaking is that? How wonderful is it that restitution is not required and that at that last moment, like the thief on the cross, they can give their lives to Christ? Praise God for that. How wonderful is that? The next part of lesson two, restitution is not needed for salvation because part three, we're saved by grace through faith. Restitution isn't needed because we're saved by grace through faith. That is the gospel. If restitution was needed for salvation, salvation would not be by grace through faith. Salvation would be by restitution through human effort. You would be saved by trying hard enough or doing enough good associated with the sins that you've committed. And I recognize this. In the Catholic Church, following confession, you leave the confessional and you go out and do what? Penance. Penance. I don't know that there's anything more antithetical to the gospel than penance. It's restitution. You're going to go out and make up for the sins you're committed, you committed by saying some number of Our Fathers or Hail Marys. I remember leaving the confessional every time and being told to go out, maybe if it was bad enough, maybe even say, say a couple rosaries. Nothing could be more opposed to the gospel than penance. And thank God that restitution isn't required. We're saved by grace through faith. The point of the famous hymn, Just As I Am, God wants to save us as we are, not as we would be after we made some number of wrongs right. So instead of restitution, what's required is repentance and faith. Restitution isn't required, but repentance and faith are. Repentance, turning from sin. Repentance means change versus repayment. So you say, what's the difference between repentance and restitution? Restitution is repayment. Repentance is change. And this brings me to two qualifications I want to make. Lesson three, restitution is not needed for salvation, but part one, repentance produces fruit. Repentance produces fruit. John the Baptist famously said, I've talked about this in many sermons as well, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance produces fruit. This is how you understand Zacchaeus. If you came to me and said, Pastor Scott, explain what we're seeing with Zacchaeus, I would say this, you are seeing repentance that produces fruit. You're not seeing a man saved by works. You are not seeing a man saved by making restitution. You are seeing a man whose repentance produces fruit. He was genuinely repentant, and his repentance produced fruit. So let me say it like this. Zacchaeus did what he did not to be saved, but because he was saved. One more time. Zacchaeus did what he did not to be saved, but because he was saved. It was an outpouring or overflow of his faith, his repentance. It's the biblical principle of putting off and putting on, taught most clearly in Ephesians 4. Just listen to a few verses Paul wrote and consider how well they describe Zacchaeus. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, put on the new self, let the thief no longer steal. But it doesn't stop there. That's what the thief puts off, stealing. And then it says, but let him or let him put on or labor, doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the thief puts off stealing and then puts on generosity, which is what Zacchaeus did. He's one of the best examples in Scripture of putting off and putting on. He's going to put off defrauding people. He's going to put on giving to people. Now, when I was a freshman in high school, there was a senior, and I'll just say his name was Brian, and he was a terribly cruel individual, and I don't think I say that about many people, but he was, and it seems, or seemed at the time, like Brian's primary purpose in life was trying to ruin mine. And I'm not kidding. I was going over the sermon with Kitty because we grew up together, went to the same school. She was a couple years behind me, so she might not remember Brian. But she said, why did he hate you so much? And I said, I don't know. But for whatever reason, he just despised me. And the football team, that because we went to a small school, the football team had less than 20 players. So we couldn't scrimmage. You need 11 players to field a team, so we don't even have enough players on the team to scrimmage each other. So we always had to scrimmage varsity against junior varsity. 
Well, scrimmaging varsity against junior varsity is fun when you're varsity scrimmaging the junior varsity, <laughs> but it's not as fun when you're on the junior varsity scrimmaging the varsity, right? And so I can remember when we scrimmaged the varsity, I'm a freshman, there's not a lot of players on our team, so if you had a pulse, you got to play all the time. Scrimmage in the varsity, and Brian's on the varsity. And his nickname, I'm not kidding, was the Buzzsaw. That was Brian's nickname, the Buzzsaw. I remember one time getting dressed, the first time, putting on my, putting on my football equipment, my pads and everything, the very first time. And someone says, hey, Scott, you want to go up against the Buzzsaw today? Because I guess it was just known that he, he hated me. And it didn't matter who's all out on the field, it's like the Buzzsaw is going to go after me. I'd be walking down the hallway in the school, and if Brian or the buzzsaw was coming toward me, I'm either going to try to go the other direction, or if I can't because i got to get to class, I'm going to try to walk on the other side of the hallway and just hope he doesn't see me. And just I have horrible memories of how, how much he picked on me and how, how uh, terrible he was. Probably the, one of the best things about my freshman year ending was that it meant that his senior year ended and he was leaving, and I wasn't going to have to see him ever again. Uh, and, and I'm not kidding, but the thought of not having to see Brian again brought me happiness. My, my entire high school experience was improved by his departure. So fast forward 14 years to my wedding day, and Katie and I decided to get married in our hometown of Far River Mills. And it seemed, I don't know if it's because we both grew up there or because people were curious, like how'd Katie Maher and Scott LaPierre end up together. But it's like everyone comes out for our wedding. Plenty of people we didn't invite. <laughs> I remember showing up at the wedding, it's like, who, who, I didn't even know the Far River Valley had this many people in it. And so we didn't have, we, there were hundreds of people there. And I remember that they announced Katie and I as husband and wife. And we're, they start playing the song, and we're walking down the aisle hand in hand, and, you know, the free hand, that I'm, not, I'm holding Katie's hand with one hand, and then the free hand I'm waving to, to all of the people who are in attendance, and most of them you recognize. And out of the corner of my eye, guess who I saw? I saw the buzzsaw. Yes. And my heart sank because I thought, if there's anyone who can ruin one of the most special days of my life, it is the buzzsaw. So Brian was a big partier, and so for all I know, we didn't have alcohol at our wedding, but he can, he, if anyone can bring, get alcohol at a wedding, it's going to be the buzzsaw. So for all I know, he's going to be drunk, or he's going to be high, and he's going to pick a fight with me. And so a little later, he, I'm standing there looking at this when I feel this arm come up behind me around my neck, and it was his arm. And I thought, well, this is it. <laughs> this is where I end up in a fight or a wrestling match on my wedding day. You know, looking sharp dressed, and I'm going to be rolling around in the grass with the buzzsaw. He leaned in, and he said, would it be too late to ask for your forgiveness? Because apparently sometime after high school, someone had shared the gospel with the buzzsaw. And the buzzsaw gave his life to Christ. There was a friend of mine who was a Christian. His, his name was Justin Stewart. We played a lot of... I, I wanted to use the buzzsaw's name in the sermon because I wanted to send it to him, and I might still do that. Katie's like, no, don't, don't use his, his name. But, so I'll refer to him as Brian, but there was another mutual friend we had named Justin. And I was talking to Justin one time because we'd each become Christians after high school, and Justin said, you know, Scott, you're not going to believe who keeps me on the straight and narrow in my relationship with Christ. And I said, yeah, go ahead, tell me. And he said, Brian. I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. Because apparently the gospel changes people's hearts dramatically. And Brian had been greatly convicted by the way that he treated me in high school, and he came up behind me and asked if it would be too late to ask for my forgiveness. So here's my point. When we come to Christ and we repent, our lives are changed. We're not saved by grace, or excuse me, we're not saved by those changes. We're saved by grace through faith, but the changes are the evidence that we are saved. Now, for Zacchaeus, he was not changed, he was not saved by the things that he did, 
but the things that he did were the evidence that he was saved. And so don't misunderstand this account. How terrible would it be if you read this account and got the gospel wrong and thought that what God is showing you is that you must do the same things as Zacchaeus to be saved. That's not what's happening here. Now, I can't say what exactly it looks like for each of us, but I can say that if we have genuinely repented, our repentance is going to produce fruit. The next part of lesson, lesson two, restitution is not needed for salvation, but part two, God might convict us to make restitution. You're not saved by making restitution, but God might convict you to make restitution. Perhaps you'll be saved and you, like the buzzsaw, will be asked or burdened to ask for forgiveness from someone you hurt before you were a Christian. Perhaps you stole something before you were a Christian, you became a Christian, and then God convicts you to make restitution for what you stole. Perhaps you slandered someone before you were a Christian, and then after you became a Christian, God convicted you to do what you could to right the reputation that you damaged. Perhaps you lied before becoming a Christian, and after becoming a Christian, God convicts you to tell someone the truth and do your best to straighten out the lie you told. Now, this happened to me. So during college, there was a girl that I badly hurt. And by extension, because parents love their children, I also badly hurt her family. My actions bothered me for years after I became a Christian, I mean. And at first, I thought that it was just guilt. But soon I became convinced that God was convicting me to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Now, social media has made it, unfortunately, very easy for people to be communicating with people in their past that they should not be communicating with. Does that make sense? Social media has made it way too easy even to just look up people from our past that we should not look up. You don't have any business, say nothing about communicating with, but even looking up people from your past, there's just no reason to do it. And so Katie and I made this commitment, not a tough commitment, that we would simply would not look up anyone from our past. And if anyone from our past ever, ever contacted us, we would say something like, we're happily married now. We don't communicate with it. In fact, one of the things I've said is, I'm very happily married now. My wife's a really wonderful, godly woman. And if you had any questions about anything spiritually, I'd be happy for her to be able to talk to you. So no, no girl's ever taken me up on that offer to talk to my wife. But anyway... So I felt this conviction for years, and I shared it with Katie, and she supported me apologizing. And so she sat, sat, on, my, um, sat on the couch next to me to see what I was doing so she could be comfortable with all of it as I went about this process of seeing if I could even find this girl to ask for her forgiveness. So I was became concerned that if I messaged this girl, it might not, <laughs> it might make me feel better, but it might not her, make her feel better. It might resurface old wounds or cause her, cause her even more hurt than comfort. And so I found her mother, and I sent her mother a message, and I said, I became a Christian, and I've been convicted about the way that I treated your daughter, the way that I hurt her, and I've been convicted by extension about the ways that I hurt you and your family. And I will, I'm asking you to please forgive me for what I did. And I told her, you can decide whether it would be wise to pass this along to your daughter, whether it would make her feel better or not. And, her mo and the mother sent a nice message to me in response. I don't have any idea what the mother did with that message after that, but I didn't need to worry about that because I believed that I had done exactly what God had convicted me to do. So here's the question. If God convicts you to perform some form of restitution, but you don't, is it going to affect your salvation? No. It's not going to stop you from being saved. You're not going to lose your salvation, but I will say this. It can affect your sanctification, and it can affect your peace. You might not have peace until you respond appropriately to the conviction God's given you. Now let's look at the last verse, Luke 19, 10. 
The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This brings us to the next part of lesson one. Part one, Zacchaeus sought Jesus. Part two, but Jesus sought him first. But Jesus sought him first. Let me ask you a question. By nature, by sinful, unregenerate nature, do lost sinners naturally seek the Lord? Just say no. Just let's get this right. By nature, lost sinners do not seek the Lord. Psalm 14, 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there's any who understands, any who seeks after God. They've all turned aside and anticipates a negative response. No, nobody seeks after God. Together they became corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Paul quotes this in Romans 3.11, says nobody seeks God. Now this brings up a question. If nobody seeks God, but we see Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, how do we reconcile this? What is going on here? Well, the solution is we seek God after God first drew us. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So yes, Zacchaeus sought the Lord, but the Lord sought Zacchaeus first. Now let me show you something interesting. When I was going over the sermon with Katie, she looked at verse 10, and she said, this doesn't really seem like it fits here. We've got the account in verses 1 through 9, but why is verse 10 here? In other words, in verse 9, Jesus says, today salvation's come to this house. And then Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What does Jesus' words in verse 9 have to do with his words in verse 10? I'm not seeing the, the flow here. It actually flows perfectly. Or another way to say it is, there's really no better place for Jesus to say the words in verse 10 than right here. Because salvation coming to Zacchaeus is a great example of Jesus seeking and saving the lost. Now, you, you don't see that because you're kind of, I don't want to say blinded, but you're, dis, and I don't even want to say distracted because that sounds negative, but you're kind of caught up. And I am too. We're all kind of caught up in everything Zacchaeus does. So we kind of miss what Jesus did. We're so focused on Zacchaeus' behavior, we miss Jesus' behavior. You know, Zacchaeus runs out of the crowd. He climbs up in the tree. So we're like, oh, this is all about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. Let me be clear with you. Whatever Zacchaeus did to seek Jesus pales in comparison to what Jesus did to seek Zacchaeus. Verse 1 says Jesus was passing through. Passing through to get where? Where's he going? He's been going there and he's going to keep going there until the crucifixion. Jerusalem. He's, Jesus is passing through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. There were other ways to Jerusalem, but Jesus decided to go through Jericho. Do you know how many other recorded events there are in Jericho? None. There's one recorded event in Jericho, and it's this with Zacchaeus. In other words, it looks like Jesus went through Jericho for no other reason and to say otherwise would be speaking into silence that Jesus went through Jericho than to meet with Zacchaeus. Briefly look back at Jesus' words in Luke 19.5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. And there is so much in this verse. First, notice it says, when Jesus came to the place. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It does not mean when Jesus came to the place that Zacchaeus was up in a tree. That's like a super shallow, superficial understanding. It means when Jesus reached the place that he was divinely appointed to reach to invite Zacchaeus to come out of the tree so he could go to his house. Now, we use the phrase divine appointments, and I'm fine with that, and it's nice to think that God has divinely appointed something for us. But who really had divine appointments constantly? Jesus did. He's following the Father's will. Every single appointment for him is a divine appointment. And he was divinely appointed to go to Zacchaeus' house. He was divinely appointed to reach this spot and look up in the tree and tell Zacchaeus to come down. 
And this is why Jesus used the word must. Do you notice that? I must do this. I must go to your house. It wasn't random. It wasn't chance. It wasn't coincidental. Jesus didn't just say, oh, you know, I'm kind of getting hungry. I want to stop. And you know what? I'll just go ahead. Oh, this guy's up in a tree. I'll see if I can go to his house today. No, he said, I must go to your house. It was divinely appointed. Robert H. Stein wrote, the word must implies, the Greek word for must implies a divine necessity to do so. And this is also why Jesus used the word today. Did you notice that? What could Jesus have said? Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree, get your house ready because I'm going there. You didn't expect this, so just take all the time you need. Let me know when you're ready, and then I'll show up. Jesus said, no, I've got to be there today. This cannot be put off. And I want to conclude with this. The gospel is an invitation, but it's an invitation that demands an immediate response. Just like Zacchaeus was not to put Jesus off, we are not to put Jesus off. So if you're a believer, follow Zacchaeus' example. Be sensitive to the fruit that God wants you to produce as a result of your repentance. If you're an unbeliever, then you need to follow Zacchaeus' example and quickly and joyfully respond to Jesus' invitation so that you can hear the same words that Zacchaeus heard, which was, today is the day of salvation. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for the way that you pers- your son pursued Zacchaeus, and I thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit in the world today pursues us and draws us to you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege of being able to respond to the gospel. We thank you that you were the initiator. And I would pray, Lord, for any who are here who have not responded to that conviction or or that invitation, that they'd be convicted to do so. I thank you that restitution is not part of the gospel, that it could be um, part of our sanctification and that you could have us perform some form of restitution after becoming Christians but how thankful we must be that we don't need to make right any of the sins we've committed, that they were all paid for by your son when he hung on that cross in our place, as Jake shared during the communion devotion, dying for us, dying as us, taking the punishment our sins deserve. Thank you for the gospel, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith, and let that be a reality for anyone, especially anyone who might have thought that restitution would be part or required for salvation. But let us be sensitive, if assuming we are Christians, to any restitution you would have us make for sins we have committed, Lord. Give us awareness of that even at this time. Maybe something comes to mind for someone, and give us the courage and diligence to respond well to that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.